Hey everyone, and welcome to this special soapbox edition of the Risky Business Podcast. My name's Patrick Gray. As regular listeners would know, the soapbox podcasts we publish here at Risky Biz are wholly sponsored, and that means everyone you hear in one of these editions paid to be here. And yeah, we're chatting with the CTO and CEO of Airlock Digital in this edition of The Soapbox. And most of you would already know uh, that I'm a massive fan of their tech. They make an allow listing and endpoint hardening solution uh, that can be used by large organizations. And, you know, that's the key thing. It can actually be used by large organizations. It is a very, very good product. And if you're looking to tighten up your endpoint controls, uh, you should definitely check them out. Uh, so yeah, Airlock CTO Daniel Shell and Chief Executive David Conningham uh, are joining me today and we're talking about a bunch of stuff actually. Uh, when we recorded this interview, uh, they were actually attending the CrowdStrike Falcon conference uh, in the US because uh, yeah, they partner with uh, CrowdStrike on a bunch of things. So we talk about some weird stuff that has come up in conversation uh, there with the normies attending the conference and a spoiler alert, PAM solutions don't actually do allow listing even though some PAM vendors say that they do. Uh, we also talk about the risk malicious browser extensions posed to organizations out there. Uh, Airlock are working on a mechanism for its customers to allow list the installation of extensions. Uh, but there's some really interesting stuff in this interview about why you can't really use third-party tools to stop them being invoked once they're installed because browsers are really complicated beasts uh, these days. But I'm going to drop you in here where we talk about Microsoft's new uh, feature, Smart Application Control. This is a Win11 thing. And uh, Daniel and David absolutely think Microsoft is doing something interesting here, uh, but it's certainly not a usable control for enterprise. And that's not just them pushing their own barrow. Uh, like, it's just not, at least for now. So here is Daniel Shell uh, talking about that. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, there's a new feature that they've had in um, inside a preview for a little while. And I guess I think yesterday they sort of did the official blog announcements and such about it as well. Um, they, they call the feature Smart Application Control. The way that operates is that firstly, it will only work on a brand new clean installation of Windows. You can't sort of just turn it on later. And it, it's you've got sort of an, three radio buttons um, is the configuration for it, where it's either in like a sort of a learning mode where it's trying to determine if you might be a suitable candidate for smart application control. And what that means is, I guess, it's like monitoring your system for a period of time and going, oh, maybe this user really just only uses a browser and maybe they got you know, Office or something and Skype or something, that's all they use. So it goes, okay, well, they're not sort of, you know, a, a, a problem user that maybe runs lots of different applications or develops or, um, you know, runs a lot of unsigned code for different reasons. So it will then, you know, when it thinks it's appropriate, turn on and move that machine into an enforcement mode. and. When that machine is in the enforcement mode, it will, um, you know, as long as it's signed, the binaries are signed, it's, it will be allowed to run. So it's really not giving much control or any sort of configuration beyond signing is the solution here. Attackers never sign code. That's crazy. Yeah, and and, they, and you know they did another big announcement last week where they're like, okay, well, to make smart application control more better off, we're going to make it much easier for Azure pipelines and such, just that everyone can side code. We're going to make take code signing to the masses, you know, sounding nearly like like, like let's encrypt for code signing, <laughs> just about. But then I guess yeah, attackers will sign their code one way or another. They're doing it today by stealing certificates or getting their own for a campaign. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm not sure about that, but the real you know deal breaker, no matter what, I guess at the end of the day is that when you need an exception to the policy, um, which could be like, hey, this DLL has been blocked or you know I don't just it's just not allowed to run, um, then you have to actually just you have to turn off the control, and 
that would be sort of okay, I guess, not ideal. Is but you can't actually turn it back on. Once you turn it off, it's off. <laughs> and you you know, you 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 turn you turn it back on by reinstalling Windows. Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen the screen caps, and like, I think I heard about this pretty early on because obviously through working with you guys, I'm I'm quite interested in this topic, and you know, I heard talk of it, but then when the screen caps kind of hit Twitter, it's like. You know, when you see a little warning saying, you know, warning by doing this, the only way to turn it back on is to reinstall Windows. You kind of think, you know, did you think this through, really? Yeah, like, I, I, and I can sort of see why they did it. Like, because at the end of the day, the smart app control is really like a wrapper for Windows Defender application control. Um, so it's just sort of the design of it and how the policies and that worked. And, you know, they want to really ensure the integrity. But I think like the Windows Defender application control in generally, like, Technically, it's a fantastic security control as far as its you know, technical capabilities and the, how it's built into the operating system and the, the times it loads and such. It's really fantastic, but there's really not, not much effort has been spent in the reality of you know, managing this. Um, I, I really can't see any organization that would be able to use this in any manner. Like, you know, how can you enforce a policy where... Like if you where you, you turn it off and you know it's not going to write anymore. Like yeah, no, like, it's like not, control's it's not just really. gone forever. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's not the best. David, you've got something to add? Yeah, the the reason they've done that, my understanding technically, is because the way it works is whenever a file is written to disk, Windows will sit there and monitor all the file writes to disk. And if it's signed attested code, uh, what the uh, Defender Application Control Service will do is it will mark a flag in the file's NTFS alternate data stream. And uh, essentially then it, it actually stores a database locally on your computer of all the files that have previously been attested to that are allowed to run based on this flag that is actually attached to the file in your sort of NTFS volume, right? So the reason you can't turn it off and then turn it back on later is because as soon as you turn it off, it stops adding those tags. And then when the theory is, if you turn it back on two weeks later, then suddenly you've got this chunk of your system that hasn't actually been monitored or attested to, and you could end up with a whole bunch of blocks of legitimate things. So they have to make sure they're monitoring all the time as part of the fundamental design of the solution. And Daniel and I were sort of spending a bit of time once we sort of figured out uh, the design of of how it works about how can they engineer back from this it's sort of like fundamentally in 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 the you know control unless they you know put monitoring on in the background the whole time to make sure they always have a complete picture even if the control's off but obviously there's a performance overhead that comes with that i mean that's the only way i can think that you would actually fix this right like you would you would just have to get it to constantly be doing the thing without enforcing it which i kind of wonder why they didn't and maybe it is because of that performance impact yeah, exactly. But then, you know, it's kind of smart because, you know, something that we obviously do, you know, at Airlock is we have a local trust database where, you know, we manage tens of millions of hashes and that database grows as you as you add to it. And, you know, we have we can sort of do uh, generally around 10 million hashes without performance degradation. But, you know, the, the thing about Microsoft's offering is the database are your files. So in effect, if you can, you know, get like the trust database goes with everything and it's infinitely scalable and it's and it's quite ingenious in in that regard yeah it's just the other parts that are that are not so great yeah, yeah, but, yeah. I, but i was wondering i was wondering like like who is the intended customer for that like that's the thing that's the thing about it that's kind of boggled my mind because i can think as me as an individual running on a computer that I don't plan on doing weird stuff with like as an end user i can see that it would be quite useful but in an enterprise it makes no sense I, I, I'd say, yeah, you know, I think maybe like home consumers or prosumers 
And I'm not sure which like editions of Windows will have this enabled. Like I'm not sure if it's a home edition thing. It, it might make sense for you know, my parents could probably run that and not have a problem with like using the browser and you know that's most of what they use the PC for. So you know it's great to see if more people are doing application control. We do like to see that. Um, I think that one of the other challenges that uh, Microsoft has, or just you know we're giving a platform for an organization to manage in, you know, their own environment. When Microsoft have to design something that works globally, and I think there's sort of a different scale challenge, obviously, um, but also sort of changes how they have to design their capability there. Yeah. For, for me, it was, do you remember uh, Windows 10S a few years ago for education, which was you can only run Microsoft Store apps was the, the, the vision that Microsoft had. And the, the benefits there were, uh, you know, we always keep your computer performant. No matter what the, you know, crafty university students do, they can't install things outside the store. Therefore, your computers will never slow down over time, right? And that, that was a value proposition, but it never took, uh, you know, um, took off and because you couldn't run normal executables and, and apps from the internet which is just the, the windows ecosystem just isn't store centric enough in order for that approach and you know maybe yeah, they who were do you think you are time. apple ios yeah. you know <laughs> yeah exactly so i i think that this feature is to be honest it's an automated way that windows can determine whether you should be a s edition or not and it's their way of just sort of figuring that out um on the fly because you know it is a great preventative control uh but they can do that on a case-by-case -case basis trying to get people to that model um yeah so but doesn't it allow theory. any signed code to run? So if someone steals a developer's certificate, like they win anyway. Yeah. So I wonder how valuable a control it's, it actually is. Yeah, a bit less restrictive than just a store. But but yeah, you're right. Um, it's it's better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, you know yeah. you've just mentioned that uh, you're over there for the Falcon uh, conference, which is CrowdStrike's conference. Funnily enough, you know a, a vendor that is actually has enough of an install base to have its own conference with a trade floor for all of the other vendors that it partners with, right? Which is just uh, sort of a sign of, of how big uh, CrowdStrike is these days. And this has exposed you to a very interesting collection of prospects, right? Because they come from from many different walks of life. You've got the ones who we mentioned are like, okay, we're, you know, we're, we've been a carbon black shop doing the allow listing and we need something else. So that's one group. Uh, you've got other people who are, hey, I heard you on Risky Business. That's another group uh, that you've got coming and, uh, coming and seeing you. But there's this other group again that is coming to you with this question, and it's something that you wanted to talk about because it, it's it's just such a strange question, but they keep coming up to you and asking, do you do PAM? Do you do privileged access management? Why on earth would someone ask you, David Cottingham, why you, an allow listing company, does privileged access management? Oh, yeah, look, privileged access management is not, you know, allow listing. Uh, they're two, two separate things. But the reason they ask the question is because there's a lot of privileged access management tools that get, you know, have the capability to stop certain users from running certain apps. And they say, hey, we can do allow listing. Uh, and they just take a completely different approach to it. And there seems to be this perception in the market that, hey, one time I used, um, you know, uh, I, I think it was Beyond Trust, Daniel, um, yeah. for, you know, uh, allow listing. But they're just, you know, controlling what, you know, you can elevate. Now you can double click on this app and it runs while you're in that mode. But that doesn't stop malware, right? Uh, so 
people sort of well, ask it's not us. a wow listing, and I can understand why it's been driving you up the wall. But it, it's really nuts, isn't it? When you've got a group of vendors who make a different, a completely different technology, saying you can use our technology to do a wow listing. So then people mm. think that people who are offering. So, you know, some people think that companies that are offering allow listing must be PAM vendors. It's just so weird. Yeah, it was a weird thing. Like one, I'd say one conversation that I had there, like someone came to the stand and they said, hey, you know, do you privilege manage? And we sort of like had that sort of conversation where we tried to explain it. And they said, you know, we, we use this privilege solution and in it, we've got lots of developers and all the developers are local admins. So we use privilege manage to restrict them to run unauthorized software. And for us, it's just like a complete like, well, that's what allow listing does as a core, and we're built to do that. You know, we apply to obviously administrators, the system itself, and all these other contexts. You know, it's just a really interesting approach. Well, you know, a, a wrong approach to be honest, <laughs> to try to prevent. <laughs> it's just a really interesting and wrong approach. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to yeah, to to try to like you know control the executions of files through privilege. You know, what we're doing, it's not about you know can um, Pam run Photoshop. Um, it's about you know preventing malware. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, let's make admin a security boundary again, which is just, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's good to the reduce ship has privilege. Sailed. Yeah, but I guess it's like administrators quite often are the most dangerous users because attackers are going after them. You know, the, the ones that have that access in the first place, like your IR teams and your security people are the ones that are getting fished, you know, quite often in the first instance. Uh, and they're the ones that you really need to restrict from running code, particularly on their yeah. internet connected devices, because they're going to be running admin and they're going to be past those boundaries all the time so you want to make sure that they're only running trusted things yeah and, and the other thing i've seen and in, in conversations with customers is they will say things like oh yeah we well we use pam so not everyone's an administrator anymore that's great but they've done things like hey if you run a file out of this unc network share it will run with admin so it's like injecting admin privileges into <laughs> user context so now so now it's like any domain user in your organization can run something as admin out of that folder and not everyone's like keeping that folder secure so if you put your malware in that folder you, it's a it's a privesk right yeah and yeah so i don't know i know this is an audio yeah. podcast but i am rubbing my temples uh, i can assure <laughs> the listeners that i'm actually sitting here rubbing my temples because yeah uh, it's crazy because there are there are a few like Pam vendors who do cool stuff, I think. Mm. But you know that's another product category that's been around for so long, and there are some there are new ones, right? But some of the OG Pam vendors out there, like they do some pretty crazy stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would not be game enough to go near the you know Windows privilege management model. You know that's just a, a bit, um, yeah, just a complex area, right? And it's just something that you know you need to be knowledgeable if you're going to say, I, you know, I can make it more flexible than Microsoft. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, look, there's another thing I wanted to talk to you guys about because there's been some interesting developments in Windows land, right? In terms of what attackers are doing. And there's two things in particular that have been going on that I think that I think are interesting, right? One is the malicious use of Windows drivers with risky properties. So we saw news that there was a anti-cheat game driver that attackers were trying to bundle up into an MSI install package and like paste across a network to Privesk and be able to kill EDR and AV processes to do their ransomware stuff because of course AV and EDR processes are hard to kill even when you're admin, right? So by using these, you know, by somehow installing these uh, risky drivers and using them, you know, blah, 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 right? So that's been something that's been going on. Another thing that's been going on is like APT crews mostly have been doing stuff like once they get on a box, 
they've been installing malicious uh, browser extensions but doing it in a hidden way. Adam and I actually had a really interesting discussion about that last week on the on the on the main show because that's actually quite hard these days. And this this got me thinking, right? That every time I'm confronted with a paper about some of these techniques, right, which might be EDR evasion, they might be stealthy persistence and exfil of stuff like browser session information or in the case of the Sharpex malicious extension, which was uh, being used by a North Korean APT crew, like they were actually exfilling email, webmail from the browser via a hidden extension. But when you actually look at the kill chain for this stuff, it's a mile long. I'm in two minds about this, right? Because like with these kill chains getting so long, it almost feels like EDR should be in a better position. It should almost make you less necessary. But at the same time, a lot of these long kill chains are designed to evade the EDR. So I'm like, you know, uh, rubbing my temples is a, is, a, is a bit of a theme today. But I'm guessing that you've both followed these sort of developments in tradecraft that are, that are common at the moment. Um, do you, what, what are your thoughts, Daniel, on, on yeah. some of these techniques? Yeah, so like, you know, in the example you're giving um, with the malicious Chrome extension, you know, they're running like PowerShell scripts to turn on development mode and to you know, sideload their Chrome extension, which is you know, saying it's quite difficult to actually do. You know, they're calling curl to download all of the components from a website. You know, they're running then a whole bunch of, um, you know, then they pull down, I think, some executable files even, which are then run through command prompt. Um, so there's, you know, this whole this sort of different parts. I think there's a VBS component actually in this one as well. Um, yeah, and for us, at the end of the day, like we control all of those components really as far as like VBS, um, you know, definitely uh, PowerShell and all those components. So, you know, we did attack it early in the execution chain. Um, but we do talk, and a lot of my conversations actually this week at the Falcon were talking about hardening, hardening the operating system. And this is actually a really perfect example of conversations where, you know, Windows a long time ago realized that having all this extra stuff in the operating system as far as components wasn't great because it increased sort of like you know the attacker tool sorry toolkit um, so but then you know more recently in windows 11 suddenly you've got um curl exe is built in again and you've got ssh.exe and scp.exe and you know if you went back a few versions of windows those things would have been features that you would have had to install like at least to put it on the box in the first place um, and now it's just rolled in again and your attackers are starting to use these tools so like yeah the conversations we're having was like hey you know do your users need to use curl in any situation or ssh.exe in most contexts based on like group membership or the group of, or the policy that they're in and the answer is often not and that's where we go like you know because obviously these these binaries are like signed by microsoft so from a traditional allow listing perspective we would trust them to run but it's really about adding that you know next level of maturity of hardening to say like well if they don't need to be there it's again more least privilege right <laughs> don't don't yeah don't let these things execute i guess you know this this brings us back to the discussion about the sort of fundamental value proposition of allow listing because i'm guessing if you look at that sharp x that sharp x example in particular right and i'll link through to the velocity blog post on that for people to to have a look at you would hope that edr would catch various points of that of that attack, right? And it probably would. The thing that bothers me is it might not, right? Like you can just never be sure. Dave, what do, what do you think about, you know, I mean, you've had a look at that post as well. Surely yep. EDR would catch that one, right? 
Yeah, and it's sort of like all these benign actions together make up something malicious. And this is, you know, the whole thing about EDR, which is about collect all of those data, you know, all of the data and all of the actions and be able to string all of those individual things together. Because by the time you've, yeah, you jumped on curl, you've pulled down these X's, you know, you've 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 messed with some settings in the browser, then you'd hope it to be caught. And, you know, with all of these individual steps, it is quite noisy, right? And it is showing that... Um, um, you know, the, the browsers and the operating system vendors are getting better to force attackers to jump through all of these hoops, which gives us a much better opportunity for detection, right? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, but I mean, I, I, guess, so. I guess everyone talks about how, okay, you know, improvements on things like, okay, so you can't, uh, you can't just get on a box uh, with user permissions and start copying uh, session cookies, you know, auth cookies off a, out of the browser, right? You can't do that anymore. So you yeah. need to do stuff like install sneaky extensions and stuff like yeah. that to sort of get into um, the user's browser. And, and, and people talk about these extra steps as being, and it was Adam actually who, who said this on Twitter. He talked about it as being, okay, that's more opportunities for detection. But I think what's really interesting about what you guys are doing is it's also a massive prevention opportunity as well. And it's just funny that in, in, in the security world, we're so, we're so, we so often talk about detection opportunities and not so much about prevention opportunities. I just think that's interesting. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it's definitely, and, and prevention by default, you know, I think the reason that people have these execution trees, like we see it a lot with macros where, you know, Word will drop the HTI file that drops the PowerShell, that drops the JavaScript, that drops the <laughs> runs the PowerShell. Um, and then suddenly it changes and it's just the order changes or they suddenly put a HTA file into the chain. And I think they're just trying or they've, they've already proven that this bypasses the detection kaplunk <laughs> to, you know signatures yeah. right where it goes okay so if we change this and change this it's maybe they're like, like probably like fuzzing the agents right to be like yeah i do this 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 and boop okay it works you know and surely yeah, and it's also like it's also like well the machine learning model doesn't know that one yet mm -hmm. you know like that's the way i think about it yeah so i think that's that that nature of it would be like do this do this when we're sort of like agnostic of that at the end of the day we're like well you know again like we control the hda loading we hope vbs javascript scrolling you know so so it's just like well for us before when they only did one file um you know we had one opportunity to stop say a powershell script running but now they put five things that we control in the chain and they have to get all the way to the end to get success um, so one, yeah. one thing I've been thinking about though quite a lot, right? And I've been thinking, you guys know that I've been thinking about this for a while because I've spoken to you about it like quite a lot. I'm obsessed <laughs> with the browser extension thing. And the reason that I'm obsessed with browser extensions is because say you are targeting a very secure shop, right? They're using Fido auth. They've got really good controls, right? But you socially engineer one of... The, their staff into its installing a malicious extension that's actually in the Chrome like Play Store. You've got them at that point, right? And yeah. none of the controls are going to pick it up. Like your EDR is not going to pick it up. Uh, you know, it's not going to flag any unusual auth events. It's going to look normal on the wire. Like to me, you know, malicious browser extensions, like the SharpX example is one, right? Where they they get on the box, they've got a shell. And they have to, you know, yeah, as they say, burn Sage, add Eye of Newt, you know, do all of this crazy stuff to get into the browser. Whereas if you could just create a malicious one, put it in the store and get someone to install it, man, you're home and hosed. And it's a beautiful thing, right? And I just think we're going to see it. 
Yeah, you're almost at that point. It's like browsers are called almost like a, one, a virtual machine on top of your operating system in terms of the environment, right? You're sitting inside well, we keep, this we keep talking about browsers. We keep yeah. talking about browsers as the, as the new OS. Where is our EDR for browsers, right? Like, and that's a god awful thing to even contemplate. But and you know, what would EDR for browsers be? They'd be a browser extension, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, these days we've got like companies like Island, uh, which do like an enterprise instrumented browser. Which I think there's going to be. I think enterprise browsers are going to become a thing, right? So I think, um, and they're not the only ones doing that stuff. But it just sort of surprises me that people don't realize like how much of a victory this is for an attacker just to get just to get a user to pointy clicky around i mean you can restrict the installation of these things through google workspace settings right if the user's correctly yeah. enrolled and yada 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 you can do introduce some restrictions there i believe you can for windows as well but no one's doing that stuff cuz typically you know the workflows are horrible. And this is, you know, because the workflows are also horrible through Microsoft's tooling to do application control. I mean, that's why you guys have a, you know, multi-million dollar yeah. business, right? So. Yeah. And yeah. it's something I think a while back we tried to sort of research into how we could control browser extensions. And, you know, actually, you know, back in the Internet Explorer days, it was really easy to do because they were just DLLs. Um, but today, a browser extension for modern browsers is, you know, a huge collection of, JSON and JavaScript and artifacts yeah. um, where when we tried to control... And, I, and I'm, guessing yeah. the, I'm guessing the same stuff that makes them difficult to silently install is the same thing that would make them difficult for you to control. Yeah, and when we started controlling, like saying, hey, well, how about we just like, you know, block these files from loading, Chrome would sort of enter these like you know, um, reinstallation auto repair loops, which would be a bad user experience, I guess, you know, if it kept sort of trying to fix itself and be blocked again. Um, we've had some more recent ideas. I, I think we might end up being... <laughs> not maybe in a situation where we can block an extension from being installed, but maybe not one that's already installed. So we'll be sort of like, you know, yeah. smart, <laughs> smart browser control initially. Um, but we'll, um, you know, we're, we're definitely researching into that space. Um, we think it's important to control. Um, and there's also... I, I think eventually, I think eventually, you know, something like, um, you know, control via the workspace API is going to have to be the way that Google allows third parties like you to come in and fix this. It, yeah, it has to because extensions just have built-in persistence, right? Yeah, and, and, and like the Google, um, what's the word for it? Like you look at Google's advertising and such. I think they're like even sponsored here at Falcon. You know, Google Enterprise Browser, right? They're, they're, they're repositioning in that space. Oh, well, let's get, a, let's get an antitrust suit onto him. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it is the case, isn't it? It's just like, it's browsers are fiddly now and there's no, but you know, this kind of feeds back into my earlier point, right? Which is that, you know, if browsers are the new operating systems, like why the hell don't we have better ways to control them and instrument them and get detections out of them and stuff like that? Whether that's allow listing, you know, not through their way of doing it, you know, just that sort of, just that sort of, you know, they should be a better source of data and they, there should be some sort of easy control plane for them, you'd think. Yeah. Well, well, I'm, gl I'm glad you've got an obsession about it because you're definitely pushing us to, you know, do research in this area. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the thing is, you you, you know, initially you might have thought it was easy, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was it's, just like, oh, there's a bit of JavaScript there that yeah. you can nuke, but you can't because of all yeah, the browser restrictions. It's just not. And, you know, the browsers, um, you know, first thing is user experience and, and making sure that things just work and that they fix themselves when they're broken. So, you know... They, there needs to be a valid way and um yeah we'll, we'll figure that out all right well look dave cottingham uh daniel shell thanks so much for joining me from your hotel 
uh, over there in the United States for the for the from the Falcon conference. Uh, it's a pleasure to chat to you both, and I look forward to doing it again soon. Cheers. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks so much, Patrick. That was Daniel Shell and David Cottingham of Airlock Digital there. Big thanks to them for that. And huge thanks to Airlock Digital for being a major Risky Business sponsor. And that is it from me this week. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Listening.